we're talking about revolves around faith and God's people of faith um, and operating in faith. And so, I guess, in our human nature, we approach things in different ways. It's in our human nature to be quite competitive about the things that we do. Um, it's quite a healthy thing sometimes, and sometimes it's unhealthy. If you think about the fact that um, it's good to be healthy, it's good to be in good shape, it's good to build up your muscles, it's good to build up and, and, and shape up your body to make it function well. That's a good thing. But sometimes the acquiring of a toned body and a, and a muscular body gets out of hand, and it, it becomes not just something to do with the purpose of achieving more efficiency in the sport that you're playing or in, in living a healthy lifestyle, it becomes something in itself. It becomes a quest for the acquiring of, of muscle mass. And then we get those guys that walk funny and carry invisible watermelons under their arms um, and, and are at their best when they pose. I don't know if you've noticed, it's quite interesting. I've, I've known a couple of bodybuilders, and bless you if you are or were a bodybuilder. Um, but, but one of the things they learn to do is to pose. So that if you twist your body into a particularly strange shape and you put some pressure, then this particular muscle will pop out. And it's there for the sake of popping out. Um, it's not used for any constructive purpose in the course of their daily work or a function that they fulfill. It's there to be popped out. Um, and, and sometimes uh, the way that they get that to happen is quite destructive for your actual health. Bodybuilders, before they actually perform on the stage, dehydrate themselves because then the sk uh, skin thins out and the muscles and the veins stand in more definition. And it's all for the sake of the way that it looks. It has no physical purpose it ha or no uh, practical purpose. And in fact, it's not really good for you. Um, it leads to people using steroids and, and all the things that go along with that just to acquire the bulk for the sake of having that muscle which has no real purpose. It's exercise for the sake of popping out. Sometimes when we look at people who are in good shape, we moved in different ways. Some of us look at healthy bodies and we're inspired to improve our own bodies. So we diet and we gym with varying success depending on uh, our approach and largely on our motivation. Um, we do Atkins, we do 5-2, we do boot camp or Pilates or yoga or Zumba. But often we can't sustain it because it's not a natural part of what we're doing. It's not something that we actually find an outlet for and so we forget and we fall into disrepair. And you know, there we go. Um, and, and we sometimes become people who are constantly in projects. I used to be very fit at one stage, 1980, <laughs> I ran my last marathon in 1983. Um, I've made about a thousand comebacks. I've started and never finished um, because I haven't had the motivation to continue and I've tried various techniques to get there. Um, sometimes some people look at a beautifully toned body whatever and they realize or they believe They'll never be like that. They see just the perfection of somebody. I don't know if you're watching the Commonwealth Games, but I caught a glimpse last night of the divers. They make you sick. <laughs> they do. They get up there on the board in those tiny little pieces of cloth, but their muscle definition is amazing. 
Tom Daly was up there. He's got like this line that runs up of his muscle that curves over here. He's got this ridge of hard muscle. I don't have that. I have two flotation devices. Um, but but it, 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 it looks fantastic. And some of us look at that and we say, I can never be like that. And we surrender without firing a shot. And we, we surrender to Walker's Crisps and, and Stella Artois and, and, and that's going to be, and, and winter casseroles and so forth. And we, and we just give up. We don't, we don't try it. Some people are harmed by their perception of what they look like in, in, in relation to the perfect measure. And they despair because they don't measure up to that. And that leads to people harming themselves and we have eating disorders and we have people damaging themselves in an effort to, to change what they perceive as who they are, to become like that perfect thing. And some people just look after themselves by eating the right food and living in a healthy way. And they, as they go about what they're doing, whether it's their sports or their job, in the use of the muscles, they trim themselves into the shape that they should be. Tom Daly doesn't build his muscles for the sake of looking good in that funny little costume that he wears. He needs those muscles to dive. That's what he does. And he needs to be in that shape to control himself. And so, as he practices his sport and what's needed for that sport, he develops. Not all of us look like that. And not everybody that you look at and think, I'd like to be like that, is that trimmed down. But they, some people are just healthy because of how they live and because of how they use those muscles. And you can actually see somebody who's using what they've got. It doesn't just pop out. It's got that hardened, I do stuff look. You know, we do the same as we do with our bodies, with lots of things in our lives. And I guess we do it with faith as well. We sometimes approach faith in the same way. What is faith? Let's have a look at what the Bible says faith is. Hebrews 11 and verse 1. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. If you look in the Oxford Dictionary, it will tell you something like faith is believing in something fervently without having absolute proof of it. Faith is having a conviction in something to the extent that you do it. My, my simple definition of faith is it means that you believe in something and as a consequence you act on it even though you do not have irrefutable evidence that it will work. You believe it, so you do it. Or you believe in someone, so you do what they say is right. That's what faith is. It's having the conviction in what you believe to actually do what it says. It's become something very different often in the parlance of church. It's become something very different often in the way that it's presented in church with faith superheroes and faith superathletes and mighty men of faith. And sometimes we are cowed and we are pushed away from operating in faith by we, what our perception is of it, what it should be. It's an essential part of the relationship that we have with those that are important in our lives. Faith is the, is, is the, is the foundation of friendship and of love and of marriage. You know, what's marriage about? Why do we get married? What's the point? 
we make a decision at some point that this person that I'm in a relationship with, I love this person and I believe that I should spend my life with this person. And so we take a step of faith and we make a lifelong commitment to that person. We don't know for sure that it's going to be what we expected. We don't know for sure what they're going to turn out to be. Okay? Sandra had great faith. I didn't always look like this. It's taken decades of bad living to look like I, I was a, a different person when she married me, with the whole world lying ahead of me. But she had faith in who I would be, and she made a commitment. More and more people nowadays are saying they don't feel there's a need to get married. It's a piece of paper. It's a ceremony. It's an act of faith. It's saying, I'm not just in this as long as it feels good and as long as the circumstances look good and if that doesn't work, I'll walk away. It's saying, I'm making a step of faith. I'm saying to you, I'm making you a promise. I'm here for the ride. And we make that step of faith. We believe and we act on it and we bind our lives together and there's an element of risk and we believe it's worth it and we commit. And sometimes it wobbles, but we commit. And sometimes we see it not working and breaking in the lives of others and we hurt and we scared, but we commit. And sometimes we disappoint one another and sometimes we're tempted and sometimes we mess up, but we commit. Because we believe it's worth it. And without faith and trust in a relationship, it doesn't grow. It's not pleasing. A relationship without trust is not pleasing. If somebody doesn't trust you, there's no depth in that relationship. It's just what you get. It's just out there. That's what the world is frequently portraying as love nowadays. What I can get from you. What I can get from you, and when it doesn't, then I'll walk away. And there's nothing about a faith in who this person is and what our lives together can be. It's supposed to be the basis of the relationship we have with God. Scripture says without faith it is impossible to please God. Okay? I'll read it to you in a while. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. In another place, it says obedience is better than sacrifice. God, from the very beginning, has been looking for people who would say, I believe in you. I have faith in you. That's what he wants. The stuff that we do is not as important to him. Our capabilities, our, our talents, our giftings are not that important to him. What he wants is a relationship in which there is faith in who he is, that he is who he says he is, and that he will do what he says he will do. That's what God wants. Without that, nothing we do will be able to please him. Can I repeat that? Without that, nothing that we do will be able to please him. That's the essence of what he wants. God wants us to have faith. It is by faith that we come into a relationship with God. How do you become a Christian? It's a simple thing. God is revealed to you as who He is. Our relationship with Him is broken, is, is, becomes clear to us. And God's Word says to us, there was a man called Jesus, the Son of God. And He paid the price for the mess that mankind was making and for the mess that I've made in my life. And He paid the price earn forgiveness, and I can have that forgiveness if I believe it and I act on it. And by faith, we go to God and we say, I believe it, and by faith, I'm giving my life to you. 
If you're a Christian, if you've come to God and given Him your life, then you did it by faith because no one on this earth can prove to you that that's true. Not scientifically. The Holy Spirit has challenged you and by faith you have made that step. Here's the sad part. For some Christians, that's the last act of faith that they ever have. God doesn't want us just to use our faith to start the relationship. He wants us to walk in. You know, we, we, we live by faith, don't we? My daughter's busy packing at home, and in a while she's traveling to an airport, and she's going to climb on an airplane, and she's going to Sweden on a work conference. And she's doing it in faith, because she's going to climb on board an airplane. And that's going to fly probably 30,000 feet up in the air going, what, 500 miles an hour, 600 miles an hour? She doesn't know how to fly an airplane. She can do lots of things, but she's never qualified as a pilot. And I'm very, very sure she's never met the pilot. She hasn't checked his credentials. She doesn't even know who he's going to be. She doesn't know how a jet engine operates. She's never built one. She's never maintained one. And she doesn't know the staff of the airline, but she's going to get in that plane and she's going to fly in it. And she's operating. In fact, we do it all the time. We live by faith. And then we get born again into a new spiritual life, and that faith needs to be part of that life as well. My righteous people, God says, the just will live by faith. It's not something that we add on to our Christian walk. It is how we walk as Christians. It is not a muscle that pops out when we take a certain pose and we pop our faith muscle out for people to see. It's what we are expected to live by. We are to walk in what Christ has prepared for us. We need to be walking daily in a trust that He is who He says He is and that He will do what He says He will do and what His Word says is how we should be. That's how we live. It's by faith that we're able to become children of God. We believe in His offer of salvation and we commit to eternal future and then He expects us to live by faith. Hebrews 10.38 My righteous people, my just people will live by faith. He wants us to continue in the way we've started, to have faith in, uh, enough into what He says and who He is and to be who He wants us to be. God's faith that He wants me to walk in is not just to believe that He is who He says He is. It's to believe that I am who He says I am. And it's to believe that I can do and should do the things that He says I should do. God says a whole lot about you in the Bible. It's really, really good to read that. There are loads of promises. There are loads of confessions. There are loads of statements about who you are. Are you living in line with that picture? I had a friend who was very in people's face, and he'd meet people and say, how are you doing? And they'd say, I'm fine under the circumstances. And he would say, what are you doing under the circumstances? Are you living by what you see around you, or are you living in line with what God says and who God says you are? But somehow the modern-day application of this in our Christian walk, we somehow managed to mystify and complicate this to the extent that faith is seen as something almost magical. I know Kurwa spoke last week on Abracadabra, and I haven't listened to his podcast, but I know that he wasn't implying that faith is something magical. It's this 
in, in, in some people's minds, because of the way that it's presented, it's some kind of a mystical anointing that floats around. And if you play the right kind of music for long enough, and if God is pleased to enjoy that music, and if you hype yourself up into the right frame of mind, and you say things in the right way, then somehow this mystical, magical faith settles on you, and miracles happen. We've, we've built it into this mystical, magical thing. And we turn faith into a competitive spectator sport where we try to develop our faith muscles for viewing and admiration. We try and pop our faith muscle out at the right moment by making the right faith statement. Some of us yo-yo on strange spiritual diets and fads. Some of us develop spiritual eating disorders. And some of us surrender without firing a shot. And just say, I can't do that. So I trust in the grace of God. And that's having faith. <laughs> Even that's having faith. Some people think they or become so overwhelmed by what they believe faith is and what they think they have to do that they just don't try to grow. And what happens as a consequence is the world doesn't see faith in action. The world hears a lot, but it doesn't see faith in action. And sometimes what it sees is bodybuilding faith, posing faith, dramatic, spectacular, we will prove our faith. And you know, it's interesting, I've seen God do some amazing miracles. I've seen God do some amazing things. And often I've seen God not do it when people are trying to focus just on having that happen to prove his existence. Sometimes I've seen people trying to make something happen and God standing by and saying, that's not what it's all about. And to ask those of us who be preaching over the summer to, to focus on encouraging faith and victorious faith in people in the Bible. So I want to have a look for a little while it's somebody who, in whom faith is shown very, very clearly. One of the people that, that I draw encouragement from the Bible. And if you want to get your Bibles out, we're going to be reading from the book of Judges, chapter 6. And to give the, the context, let's just look at what the, the book of Judges is all about. Um, just to put the context in, Israel has come into the promised land. They, they have been brought out of Egypt by God and He's done amazing stuff and He's shown them His power and he's wanted them to have faith in him. And they've come out of Egypt into the wilderness, and they have limped around the wilderness for 40 years because they didn't have the faith to go into the promised land. Um, God said, go in. They looked at the circumstances. He said, I will give. They said, they're giants, and so they stayed out. And they spent 40 years round and round the mountain experiencing the grace of God and the love of God and the faithfulness of God in every morsel of food that they ate. But eventually, they stand and they come into the promised land. And God gives them an instruction. He says, when you go into the promised land, because I want you to be my people and I want you to stand apart from me and not be diluted by the people that live there, there are two options for the people who live in the promised land. When you go in, you kill them or they go away. You don't make treaties. You don't make friends with them. You don't let them hang around. You don't let them stay amongst you. You kill them or they flee. They don't stay there. There's no room for them in the promised land. Israel goes in, and they don't do that. Israel goes in, and they leave 
this group because they fought hard, that group because they tricked them into a treaty, that group because they used them as, as, as people bringing tribute to them, and they left with this hodgepodge promised land. They never get the full inheritance of what God's promised, and they go through a period of time in which God rules them through judges. And there's this seesaw time for Israel. They disobey God. One of the many tribes they left behind beats them up, suppresses them. They cry to God, and God raises up a judge. They call them judges. And God raises up someone who follows God, leads the people, and delivers them. And that goes on for about 400 years. And there are loads of judges. And they're a very disparate lot of people. They're not the same. And some of them, you don't know why God chose them. One of the first ones we read about was a guy who seems, you know, you kind of think these judges must have been people with some kind of superpower, some kind of super talent that God used. But it's quite hard to find in some of them. One of them's biggest talents seemed to be the fact that he was left-handed. Another one for the macho men was a woman. One of them seemed like a superstar, incredible physical strength, a guy called Samson. He didn't do so good. But the guy we're going to look at is one of my favorite Bible characters, and I go back to him frequently. He's a guy called Gideon, and we read about him in the book of Judges, chapter 6. And I want us just to go through his story very, very briefly to pick up some issues that happen in this guy's life. It says, The angel of the Lord came, verse 11, and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the Midianites. I'm not going to go into it too much, but he was hiding away. The Midianites had oppressed Israel at that stage, and they were a vicious, brutal bunch of people who took everything they could, and what they couldn't use they trampled with their animals, and they left Israel impoverished. And so the Israelites would hide their food from them. And Gideon, when he's found, is hiding the little bit of wheat he's got in a wine press and trying to thresh it there, although it's the most unlikely place to do that. And that's where the angel of God finds him. Not in some mighty act, but actually hiding away from the enemy. And he says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I've got a very pictorial mind in the way that I think. I kind of, when I read the Bible, I, I see it almost like a cartoon unfolding. And, and this particular scene, I see this way. This incredibly impressive angel person arrives, and there's Gideon down in the wine press, and he says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, and I believe this happened. Gideon went, I genuinely think that happened. He thought, there's somebody else in this wine press with me. Because I'm not a mighty man, I'm not a mighty warrior. And that carries on in what he says. First of all, he says, but if the Lord is with us, why are we in such trouble? There's not a lot of faith there. He says, I know God did some good stuff in the past, but right now things are not going very well with us. And then it says in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. Not in the strength that you will have. Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And Gideon then it's a familiar story. He says, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. Gideon's first response is to look at who he is. And he says, I'm not up for the job. And I could spend a long time looking at the smallest tribe, smallest clan, youngest son. Yes, he was, a, he was the son of a, of a leader. He had servants, but he was not a mighty warrior. And he was not a powerful leader. And he had no track, or, track record whatsoever of being a powerful leader. But God says to him, go in the strength that you have. 
God is seeing something in him that he's not seeing in himself. And God is saying to him, we're going to do some great stuff. And he says, you're going to deliver Israel. Gideon's response is to want to have more time with God. He says, can I prepare a meal for you? Can I make an offering? And he spends some time trying to find out more about this person. And God does reveal himself to him. He's left knowing that he's seen God. He's responded, he has sought God, and he's left knowing that he's seen God. And the next thing God comes to him to do, it says in verse 25, and I'm going to shoot through it, of Judges 6, that same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Now just before this, Gideon has built an altar to the Lord and worship, probably for the first time in pure worship. But where was Israel at this stage? Gideon's father is one of the leaders amongst his tribe, and yet he's got a Baal and an Asherah pole. Israel's in a bad place with regard to God. They're worshiping the other gods, which is why God didn't want them to leave those other tribes amongst them in the first place. And they believed in those gods, and God says to Gideon, your first act is to tear down that thing. And this is what you're going to do. You're going to take your father's second best ox, which was big money, and you're going to take that and use it to pull down the pole, cut the ox up, use the wood from the pole, and make a sacrifice to me. It's a dangerous thing to do. His dad's not going to like it. His dad's not going to like it, and the people of the town are not going to like it because he's going to rip down their God. And at this point, Gideon has a choice. And this is a recurring thing that happens in our lives, guys. God says to him, this is the right thing to do. This is what I want you to do. There it is. I want you to do that. On the other hand, these are the circumstances. I'm a little squirt. I'm scared. The people aren't going to like it. My dad's going to kill me if I kill his bull. Why can't I just let things be as they are? And there it is. There's a choice. What's he going to do? What he would prefer to do, which is what he's been doing all along, nothing. Or is he going to do what God says? It's not complicated. It is not magical. It is not mystical. It is a straightforward choice. God or not? Do I believe that that is God? Do I believe the person I spoke to is God? Do I believe that he wants me to do this? And do I believe that I can trust him. This is the right purpose for my life. It's as simple as that. He has to make a choice. And so he does. He chops down the Asherah pole, pushes down the altars, has the barbecue, and the next morning people are thoroughly ticked off, as you would expect. It says he took his ten servants and did as the Lord had said. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. He wasn't a mighty man. He was scared. Reasonably scared. But he did it. Didn't do it with bravado. Didn't pop his faith muscle out. Didn't pose. Didn't dehydrate himself for better definition. He just did it. Unspectacularly at night. It says, verse 30, the men of the town demanded of Joash. Sorry. They investigated, they found him, and they said, Bring out your son, he must die. A life-threatening situation. But he survives because his father is challenged. And his father says to them, if your God is so great, let him do something about it. Put your faith in your God, then he will sort out Gideon. But if you touch him, I'll kill you, his father says. And Gideon survives. 
And you know what I think happened? That real faith muscle, they just put on a few grams. It just tautened up a little bit. It got a bit of definition. Because he'd exercised it. He hadn't sung a lot of songs. And don't get me wrong, I'm a worship leader. I know the value of what worship does to build up your faith. And I'll talk about that in a moment or two. But Gideon didn't have a worship session. He didn't pump himself up. He didn't speak with an American accent. <laughs> oh, Lord! I don't know, why do we all, when we get faith, speak in an American accent? I, I don't know. He didn't do any of those things. He just, God said, knock down the pole, kill the ox, do the deed. He did it at night. And something happened. That place was delivered of that oppression that it was under. God's powers demonstrated, and he gets a new name, Jeroboam, they called him. Let Baal fight with him. Let Baal contest with him. And you know what? He walks as living proof that Baal had no power at all. And God has had a victory through a scared little guy who was in a hole threshing, not because of any mystical magic. He just believed that he should do what God said. And his little faith muscle begins to grow. And his definition begins to come. Well, guys... I would hope for most of us that, that, that our learning curve is not going to have to be as fast as, as, as Gideon's because the next thing that happens in his life is quite major. The Midianites arrive in huge numbers with the Amalekites. And it says in verse 33, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the other eastern people joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet summoning the Abyssalites to follow him. That's an act of faith. This little guy hiding in the hole is suddenly making a loud noise and saying, you need to follow me. That's scary. Because a lot of things can happen. One is everybody can open up their tent and look out and say, no. That would be terribly embarrassing. The other thing, even more scary, is they come and say, right, let's do it. And now you have to lead them. And that's scary because no matter how many people Israel put together, no matter if everybody came out, they couldn't man for man match the Midianites and the Amalekites. This was a hiding to nothing. This was whopping United against Manchester City. It was not on. But he has the response. God says, the Spirit of God says, blow the trumpet, call up the army. So he does the next thing. He calls up the army. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story. They arrive, tens of thousands of them. And I'm guessing he's saying, well, I've passed that. But he's nervous. And I want to show you something on a little aside. In verse 36 and 37 in this chapter, it talks about him going to God and saying, I'm really scared. Please, won't you just reassure me? Please, won't you reassure me? I'm going to put a fleece out. And I'm going to ask that... When the ground around it is wet, the fleece will be dry. And when the fleece is wet, the ground will be dry. And he actually asked God to encourage him. And, and you know, we told not to test God. And we told not to doubt God. But there's something honest about Gideon. He goes and he says, I'm struggling. I've blown the trumpet. I've acted in faith. I've done what you said. But help me. You know, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go to the scripture. But if you go into the New Testament, when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Configuration... Of, of, of transfiguration. He meets a man and he says, this man says, can you help my son? Your disciples couldn't. My son is being taken by 
an evil spirit and thrown on the ground and, and thrown into the fire, and he's in great danger. And he said, your, your, your men tried to cast this demon out, but they couldn't. Is it possible for you to do it? And Jesus says, if you believe, all things are possible. And you know what the guy says? Go and read the story. He turns to Jesus and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, I had a look at that verse and I thought, what does that mean? And I found incredible encouragement in it. I think this is what he's saying. I choose to believe you. Help the way I feel. Because faith isn't a feeling. It isn't a, what they used to call a Dutch courage that you got out of a bottle. That, you know, you, you, you've hyped yourself up with something. It's not a feeling, it's not a hype. It's, a, it's, it's believing. It's a decision that you make. And this guy, when he says to Jesus, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. I think this is what Gideon's doing right here. He's saying, I've blown the trumpet. I'm going to do what you say, but just show me. And God, in His grace, does. I want to say this to you. When you are stepping out to move in faith, and it doesn't feel comfortable, and you don't feel like a mighty man, and your faith muscle isn't popping out for everybody to see, and you don't know how to pose, that's okay. That's okay. What are you going to do? Are you going to give in to the feelings? Are you going to look at the circumstances? Or are you going to walk in what God has said? That's what God's interested in. He looked into the heart of Gideon and saw a man who had blown the trumpet and was getting ready to lead this army. And he saw the faith in operation. And when the guy said, I'm scared, the grace of God was there to sustain him and encourage him. And he does it later on as well. God does care about how you feel, but that's not what decides what you do. But a lot of people, I think, are crippled in their faith when they want to step out into a faith venture and they want to walk out on the water with God and they don't feel confident and they say, it's not going to work because I don't feel right. Step out. Be honest with God. You can't fool Him anyway. He knows how you feel. I believe. Help my unbelief. I choose to believe. Help my feelings. And so Gideon gets his army together. And it's not a very big army compared to the Amalekites and the Midianites. And so I think Gideon is probably asking in his heart that God will say, Gideon, by faith blow the trumpet again and more will come. It's probably what he's asking for and hoping for. And God meets with him and he says to Gideon, you've got too many men. Your army is too big. Probably another one of those moments. Did more people come during the night? And God says to him, if I deliver, verse 2 of chapter 7, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. And he gives him a process. He says, tell those who are scared that they can go home. So 22,000 men left. That was quite simple. Gideon got up and said, who's scared? And 22,000 said, he said, you can go. The Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water. And you know the story. Watch how they drink. And God sets aside 300 men. And Gideon does each of these things. Goodness only knows what he was feeling. Goodness only knows what his mind was saying he should be doing. His mind was probably saying, argue with God. Try and retain as many men as you can. 
Try and find some generals. Try and get some recruiting officers. This army is not efficient. God is saying, Gideon, there are too many. I don't need them. I'm going to do it. He's in front of a straight choice on each of these occasions. It's not mystical. It's not magical. It's not posing. There is no atmosphere around. There is God saying, are you going to do what I say? Or you're not going to do what I say. And no matter how he felt, and no matter what he thought, in each step, Gideon did what God said. Now you can see where this is going, so I'm just going to move quickly on. They win. Most unorthodox plan of battle. You've got 300 men. You arm them, each one, with a trumpet and a torch. Okay? And you get them to shout. Now I know a lot of people who think you can win a a fight by shouting. I know a lot of people who think that, but it doesn't normally work. Circumstances will tell you that normally if you bring a group of men with a torch and a trumpet, shouting, up against a well-oiled and, 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 and rehearsed horde of barbarians armed with all sorts of sharp things, that the guys with the trumpets and the torches and the shouting are not going to win. That's logic. That's circumstance. But they win. They win because God gives them that plan and because they put that plan into action. Guys, I think what I'm trying to do this morning is to demystify faith. Faith is doing what God says. Faith is believing what God says He is, what God says you are, and that you are able to do what He calls you to do because of who He is. This battle, we all know, was not won by torches and trumpets and 300 men. We know that. They didn't win the battle. God won the battle. It was not the great faith of Gideon. It was the great God in whom he had faith. I will never be able to be a great man of faith. I'm not a great man. Very ordinary. But I can be a man of faith in a great God. And he says that if I can do that, I can move mountains. He says that. He says that. So why aren't we moving mountains? I mean, let's, let's get totally practical. Why aren't we doing it? Because somehow we fall into one of those categories that we talked about. We've surrendered without firing a shot because it just looks like too big a task for us. We've thought that faith is something else. And we've gone on a quest through various spiritual diets and forms of exercise and escapades to try and build up that sometimes rather grotesque profile, just like a bodybuilder. Maybe we haven't eaten healthily on God's Word. But sitting here, in this room this morning, are enough people for God to shake the nation. That's the truth. That's the truth. Shook the world with 120. Did. Pentecost. 120 people in the Holy Spirit. And all heaven broke loose. All heaven broke loose. God can shake this nation. 
with the people sitting here. How? Whichever way he wants to, whichever tactic he wants to, what are you going to do about it? There are various ways in which we can walk in faith, but the simple thing is this. Every day, over and over again, we are confronted with choices. And the choice is, this is what the circumstances say, this is what my preference says, this is what my lust says, this is what my greed says, this is what peer pressure says, this is what my personality dictates, this is what my weaknesses make easy, and this is what God says. And there's probably not going to be music. And there probably isn't going to be a sense. There's just going to be a decision. Do you believe God? You know, the disciples struggled with this. Luke 17, verse 5. Let's just go have a look there. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Give us some more of the magic. Increase our faith. Give us a bigger dose of faith. Give us a new supply. Slide in a new memory board. Jack up the quality of our computer. Give us more faith. And he says to them, if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. He's talking about a seed. Faith grows. He's given us all a measure of faith. Faith grows when you feed it. Faith grows when you feed what God's already put there. When you do it. When you do it. And the more you do it, the more you sense God's purpose and plan, and the more we can trust you with. Guys, God doesn't always do it this way. I need to say that. He doesn't always come to an inexperienced scaredy cat in a hole to fight against the Midianites. Probably not going to be your first faith experience. But God says, for example, you shall lay hands on the sick. Do you? Or do you think, what happens if I do and it doesn't? Yeah? That's what holds a lot of us back, isn't it? What happens if I do and it doesn't? And immediately what we're saying is, it's my responsibility to make it happen, so I better get my faith muscle posing. And I better pop out my faith muscle, and it better be a good one, Otherwise, they won't be healing, and it's my responsibility, and it'll be embarrassing, and so I don't do it. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. It says, pray for the sick. Who heals people? Only God. You know, I've prayed for quite a lot of people. I've not always seen something happen. But I'll never forget, I, I was a nice, respectable very conservative Christian, and then the Holy Spirit got hold of my life and kind of messed things up. And I was worshiping with a bunch of people who kind of believe God does these things. And we were in a service one day, and I was part of the worship band, and the pastor started ministering, and he called people up for healing, and a whole bunch of people up came up, so he said, guys, come down and pray. So we came down to pray. <laughs> and as I stepped down, bless this man's heart. We had a big carpenter in the church, massive guy called Dainke. He grabbed me with his big hand. He said, come and pray for my niece. She's visiting. She's profoundly deaf. <laughs> Isn't that what everybody wants? 
because you can't fool that, can you? Not a case of a headache, I think it's gone. He's profoundly deaf. I was terrified. I was terrified because we'd been talking and preaching about faith, and frankly, I was terrified. And I said to myself, what is my job? My job is pray for her. So I went across, and I laid my hands on her, and I prayed, and I said, God, please heal her and let her hear. And you know what happened? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. She never heard what I was praying. Nothing happened. Three weeks later, I got a phone call, and Big Dianke was crying on the phone. Said, my niece can hear. I didn't do that. I can't do that. Nothing happened spectacular. My faith muscle never popped out. I didn't get the pose right. I just did what the Bible said. Lay hands on and pray. The rest is up to God. Sometimes you see it happen. Sometimes the circumstances are such that you get there to see it. Sometimes you don't see it happen and sometimes it never seems to happen. That's not what it's about. Did you do what God said you should do? Did you put his word into action? Peter's in the boat. Jesus comes walking. And Peter goes, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And he says, I can come. Decision time. Okay? There was no vibe in the boat. It was a storm game. Peter has a simple decision. Either I stay in the boat or I put my foot out. If I put my foot out, my experience as a fisherman says to me, that stuff doesn't support a human's weight and the lake is deep here. Okay? To quote Marlon Brando, could sleep with the fishes. But he makes a decision. Am I going to do what Jesus said? Do I trust him? Do I believe in him? If so, I know he loves me. I know he cares. I know he wants the best for me. So whatever happens, I'm going to do what he says. And he gets out and for a little while, he walks on the water. He then gets very wet, but he held the record for water walking in that boat. And then he starts thinking because he just starts thinking, this can't be. And he's human. Guys, time and time again, we get to a situation where we need to walk on the water just a little bit. Not because of something that we've hyped up inside ourselves, not because of circumstances that we've generated, but because we know that God's Word says, I need to do this thing. And then we have a choice. Do I do it or I don't do it? And those people that you might look at and think, that's a mighty man of faith, probably is crying out to God on a regular basis, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Is probably racked with personal concern every time they step out in faith. Has probably had lots of anguish moments that you don't know about. But somewhere along the line, they took the first step. And then a while later, God came and said, there's the next step. And they said, I'll do that. And then God came a while later and said, how about that? And they did that. And their faith muscles grew as they used them. They grew as they used them. God supplies our daily bread. He doesn't give us a bread bank. He doesn't give us coupons for a loaf every morning for the next 10. He says, I'll give you your daily bread. And God gives us the faith 
to meet the need of what we have there. You read in 1 Corinthians, you read about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and you read about tongues and prophecy and healing and so forth. They operate by faith. When do they operate? When you step out to operate in them because God says, do it. That's when they work. You don't sort of have the proof of them sitting in the cupboard and you put on your gift. They work when you do them in response to God saying, do it. It's not mystical. It's not magical. It's not a power that you have. It's not a power that you carry around in a holster. I'll hold my faith out. It's believing that God is who He says He is and that God will do what He says He will do. And it's believing that you are who God says you are. One day He said to the disciples, you'll do greater things than this, and they must have gone, yeah, right. But then they find themselves in situations later where they see these things happening and they see the dead being raised and they see the miracles happening. Not everything about faith is spectacular. Faith is putting God's plan into action every day, all the time. And I want to encourage you, rise up in your faith. How do you build your faith? I've not used a lot of scriptures, forgive me. But how do you build your faith? Do you build it by lots of studying? Well, studying always helps. Paul says to Timothy, study to show yourself approved. The workman is not ashamed of his tools. We need to know what God's word says, otherwise we can't put it into action. But you know, sometimes we study to make the Bible more difficult and more complicated and to find more reasons why we don't just step out and do it. How do you grow in faith? Well, how did Sandra grow in faith enough to stand in front of a minister one day and say she wanted to marry me and stay with me for the rest of my life and her life? She got that faith by spending time with me and getting to know me. She didn't just walk in off the street and say, I'll take him, okay. I promise to love, honor, and obey. She didn't do that. <laughs> I had to get that one in. She didn't do that. She got to know me first. And then she said, yes. How do you build your faith in God? Get to know God better. Get to know His Word. It's not magic. Get to know the person. Faith is about the person. Faith is trusting in the person. Spend time with Him. Spend time in His Word. Spend time in worship. I love the songs that Ed chose for this morning because we're declaring there's no one greater. There's no one like you. All my hope is in you. Did you know what you were singing? Did you mean what you were singing? Because if you have faith in what you were singing, go out and shake the world. There is no one like you. All my hope is in you, Jesus. Do you really mean that? Do you know him well enough to say, all my hope is in you? Or is some of your hope in something else? Your plan for life, your career, your finances, your job, your... Is all your hope in him? Wow. Then you're safe. Safe from being challenged? No. Safe from pain? No. These things come into our lives. But you're safe that you will walk in the path that He has chosen and fulfill what He's called you to be and that you can shape the world. And that's what I want to encourage you this morning. Gideon didn't have a superpower. Gideon appears to be a very ordinary person. I don't think the Bible's written with more words than needs to be used. It's in there for us to realize this was a basic, ordinary guy with not much confidence, with a huge task that could only be solved by the miraculous intervention of God. And all he had to do was take the next step each time and just 
do what God said. And you can do that. You can do that. How do I know that? Because God says you can. I don't have great faith. I have faith in a great God. What I'd like to suggest we do, and I'm going to pray in a moment, is that we ask Ed, are you here? Is he available? To, to come up, he's coming, and just lead us again in, in some of those songs. And we're going to take communion together because communion is being close to God. It's reminding ourselves of who God is, and that's what worship is for me and praise is. It's reminding ourselves of God so we build up our faith and we draw closer to Him. These things all work together. The stuff we do in church is not little segments not connected. It all flows together to God's purpose. And we're going to have Ed lead us in a time. He's going to be playing. We're going to go and take. And I want to say to this to you, if you need some prayer, I would normally say, come up, we'll have some people from the prayer team here. But ask your husband, ask your wife, ask your friend, will you pray for me? Would you pray for me? And I want to challenge you. Just pray. Just pray God's word. Just pray God's word. You don't need to pose. You don't need to pop off quickly and go and do a few training sessions. Just pray God's word over them. Just pray what you believe God's word says in their situation. And leave it to God. And leave it to God. And I think I really like what Tim said. If someone prays for you and you see God's hand do it in the week that comes or whatever, come and tell them. It'll help to build the definition of their faith muscle. It's good to testify. So Ed, if you don't mind, I'm going to pray. And if you would just continue to lead us or sing and we'll join in as we, as, as we can. And we're going to come and break bread. We're not going to ask you if you qualify to break bread. If you love Jesus, if you're giving your life to Him, you're welcome to come to the table. Come with reverence. And have fellowship with Him and intimacy with Him. Remind yourself of the incredible gift that He's brought. And have faith in the fact that that is enough to heal you and to restore you in righteousness before Him. Have communion with your family. And if you need prayer, ask someone to pray for you. And if someone asks you to pray for them, pray in faith. Pray in faith. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. For this exciting account of what has gone on and for people who are examples because you've made them examples I thank you Lord that you stay the same through the ages your love never changes your love never fails and I thank you Lord that we can walk on that love daily I thank you that we can have the victory of fulfilling your purpose in this world because you've said we can I pray, Lord, that faith rises and your enemies are scattered. I pray that here in Forest Town, this group of people will step out and begin to shake this nation in whatever way they can as we walk in daily faith with you, Lord. Amen.